Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Over the last few months, I've been doing occasional bits of work for you, but I've been trying to hold back my questions. Yes. Is that why we work in silence yeah. and we never talk? It's painful, isn't it? <laughs> but we can, uh, we can open that door now. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Who are you again? My name's Ben. Hi, Ben. There's just so many questions. Welcome to Excuse the Mess. I've sort of introduced myself already, but again, I'm Ben, Ben Corrigan, the host and creator of this podcast. The other voice you just heard belongs to Anne Nicotin, a prolific film composer living and working in London. And in this podcast, it's all about getting to know people like Anne, hearing their music, hearing all about it, and maybe getting a bit of background on them, which is what happens in this episode. There's a part B to each guest's appearance, and that's a music-making thing, where the guest and I write a brand new piece of music on the spot using only one instrument. More on that later, though. As I said, Anne is a film composer, and typically, film composers aren't really time-rich people, so I'm extremely appreciative of Anne giving up basically a whole day to hang out with me to make this podcast episode. We mainly talk about two of her film soundtracks. American Animals is one of those, a documentary drama hybrid, which is uh, kind of groundbreaking in its approach, and was nominated for an Ivan Novella Award for this particular score. The other film was recently released, and it's called Untouchable, The Rise and Fall of Harvey Weinstein. So you can probably work out what that's going to be about. We'll also talk a bit about Anne's upbringing, which was quite a nomadic existence. And really, this was just a nice rambly meandering chat finally got to ask Anne all of those questions I've been holding back and yeah if you're a film composer or an aspiring film composer maybe more specifically then this is a great episode for you in terms of getting a perspective from someone who's been in the industry for quite a while lots of tips and hopefully some words of encouragement thank you to Acast for hosting Excuse the Mess and to Arts Council England PRS Foundation and Isotope Audio for backing this podcast I nearly forgot to say, you've just heard a piece of music, you've sort of just heard a piece of music, apart from me bollocking on over the top of it, called Flamingo, from the American Animals soundtrack, and another one from the same soundtrack, happening underneath now, called First Plans. Alrighty, here is episode 13, featuring Anne Nicotin. There's just so many questions that arise that I am yet to ask. And looking around, it's like, I don't know, it's like a, for want of a better phrase, like a junk shop. <laughs> There's just instruments Thanks, all over the place. Like every available space I is know. filled with an instrument. It's terrible. And there's loads of percussion and things that are non-Western looking. Sheepskins and whatnot. <laughs> Yeah, really quite a cool studio. It's a bit like a hoarder's studio, isn't it? (laughs) You're supposed to go, no, it's lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's worried about you. (laughs) Yeah, hoarder. Channel 4 programmes. Yeah, (laughs) they've probably not had a composer on before, but you're ripe for the picking. Yay! Um, Yeah, I have to talk about these instruments, because my mum, basically, when when I was a little kid, she started collecting 
instruments. I don't know why. Maybe she just liked them for me, not yeah. expecting I'd ever use them yeah. on a film score. <laughs> and then I just kept collecting <laughs> them. And every time I go somewhere now, I buy something I like, really think nice. is interesting. So you've travelled a lot. Do you want the really boring backstory? I'd love it. I think it's not boring. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so my dad is Polish, yeah. my mum Romanian, and during the Second World War, his family moved to, well, escaped to mm. Canada because they were bombing Warsaw. They ended up in Montreal, so he became Canadian. And my dad, he met her in Romania during right, communism because okay. yeah. he was working there. My mum's got crazy stories of the communist era and how they weren't supposed to see each other because he was a capitalist enemy. Wow. And she, you know, interrogate, interrogations and things. Oh um, and they travelled around because of his work. They happened to be living in Canada for a year where I was born. Then we left when I was a year old, just and we went to different countries. Can I ask so what the job was? What he made was working move? for an engineering company. Right, an okay. So where did you end up? What places? We went to Taiwan when I was little, yeah. and then South Africa, where I started school, and then New Zealand, back yeah. to Canada, Thailand, and then Holland, where I was 11, and then I spent all my teenage years there, so that was good. Okay. Because I didn't want to move schools anymore. Yeah, formative years. Yeah, yeah, it would have been painful. I loved my school. I went to the British School of the Netherlands. Lovely. Uh, I had a great music teacher there mm -hmm. called Mr. Wright. And for A-levels, so I took A-level music, he brought this American avant-garde composer who was living in Holland, where they have amazing subsidies for composers. It's mm. a fantastic place to live for artists and musicians. So she was there doing her PhD, and she would come and give us weekly lessons during our A-levels to oh, teach us all about serialism and minimalism okay. and all these avant-garde composers, which we wouldn't have normally heard about. And she was getting us to write little pieces you know yeah. based on all of these different movements and I really loved it and her name was Vanessa Lan and I have to look her up she's still writing music but anyway I thought I just I want to do music but yeah. I was scared because it was never really encouraged as a job no. <laughs> in my family or you know many families so I did an English degree thinking mm -hmm. I loved English too and thinking oh, I'll just get a job after that yeah. with a proper degree whatever that means <laughs> But then as I was doing my English degree, which was at McGill University in Canada, I just kept going to the music department. We had to take certain electives, they called them, so other courses and, mm. and another subject. And I kept choosing the music, harmony and theory yeah. lessons. Yeah. And all the music students were going, why are you here voluntarily? <laughs> this is hell. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, I just love it. Yeah. So I kept my foot in the door there. And then when I finished my English degree, I decided to go into music composition. And I phoned um, Vanessa, who I was still in touch with, and I said to her, what do you think? I really want to be a composer. And she said, I know this sounds weird, but do you have your parents' blessing? And I said, yeah, they, they're supportive. And she said, because it's a hell of a life. Mm. And if you don't have your parents just to at least emotionally help you financially, if they can, it's really tricky. And um, so I thought that was quite an interesting piece of advice. I mean, of course... You can do it without your parents. Yeah. <laughs> but it was nice um, that I did have conversations with them, and by then they'd gotten their head around it. Did you have to win them over? I did. I had to win mine over. Oh, did you? Yeah, I had to prove something. Yeah, how yeah. did you prove it? Practice guitar for seven hours a day. <gasps> yeah. Wow. More at the weekends. Did you? So yeah. you are a guitarist. A I used to be. I used to love Steve Vai and that kind of oh, thing. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Of course I knew yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. This conversation. God, my brain. Yes, I knew yeah. that. That's amazing. And yeah. so did they come to terms with it because yeah, they saw the dedication? Exactly. Yeah, that was it. My dad was kind of always supportive. Uh, yeah, eventually my mum came around to it as well. And yeah, it was useful to have their support, but also I did a lot of hard work in spite. This is it. Yeah. You have to prove it. And yeah, a similar story as yours. Yeah. Mine were always supportive of my music lessons and mm. my dreams, you know, but they were really worried and trying to encourage a different path. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and my dad really wanted me to be an engineer. I was good at maths, but I was hopeless at physics. So eventually yeah. I just said no, and yeah. it just wasn't me. It might be because they just have no concept of what a music career is like, because my parents, zero yeah. musical background at yeah. all. Maybe Same. your parents did. No, they had no concept yeah. of how to make a living as a musician. Yeah. And then also film music 
was different. I suppose I didn't understand that either. Mm. And then I went into <laughs> contemporary music. So my composition degree was very much avant-garde contemporary music, very pure, you know, mm -hmm. film music was very looked down on. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so they came to my first concert. <laughs> and it was... Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. I just could see their faces. <laughs> oh. Really, is this the music you want to write? But they didn't really say yeah. that, but I could tell. This is a piece of music from a film called Calibre. It's actually also called Calibre, and it's just some really beautiful string writing. Sort of eureka moment when I wanted to go into film music was during my A-levels. Oh, okay. When I was watching the piano and I heard Michael Nyman's music. It was the first time I paid attention to film music because yeah. it was so amazing, beautiful, yeah. like nothing I'd heard before in a film school. And I thought, oh, that's yeah. something. Never thought of that as yeah. a career. Uh, there weren't any film music courses around at the time that you could maybe go straight into. I think mm. there was one in LA and maybe one in New York. And then um, the Royal College of Music had one yeah. in London. Mm -hmm. So I applied to that and I got on that one. That yeah. was in 2001. I've been here for and a while. And you've been, been here since then? Stuck here on this <laughs> island. <laughs> about to be kicked Just out. about to get more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I loved it. I've always wanted to live in London because when I was growing up in Holland at the British school, I felt British because yeah. all of my cultural education I guess or just influences were all British so we had the BBC most of my friends were British and teachers and it was a weird thing because I didn't really feel Canadian at all I felt British but I'd never lived in England yeah that's quite strange yeah so did you feel at home once you moved here I did yeah yeah until Brexit <laughs> happened I thought boy because yeah. um, I don't have my British passport yet. So Do you not? No, I never saw a need to apply for one right. because of the EU. Yeah. So I've got to do that now. This is a cue called Found God from Mrs Wilson, a TV series about uncovering the lies of a man working for the British government. And it's all based on a true story. to London, studied at the Royal College, yeah. and you focused in on film music. Yeah, and I think my English degree was part of that as well, okay. analysing stories, mm. and you know, which I really loved, and I think that's also helped to 
get to grips with things I watch and have to score to. I've heard that knowing about storytelling and writing is a big part of being a good film composer. Oh, that's good. I feel like it's helped me in meetings because you kind of can talk to the director on a different level, not just about the music, but... You know, mm. if you can show that you've grasped an understanding of their film or yeah. their programme, they seem to quite like that. Yeah. <laughs> it helps. However, sometimes the other way around, composers don't like it when the director starts giving like, oh yeah, could you do a key change to here and getting specific oh, about music? Definitely. Yeah. That's really annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the early days I had a director ask me about my gear. And I didn't have a mixing desk because it's all in the box now. He was like, why don't you have a mixing desk? You should get the blah, 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 blah. And I thought, honestly. Get out. As soon as Mm. they tell me they're a musician, I think, oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do it yourself. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, so you found it useful in those conversations whilst talking. Because there's a lot of talking involved, isn't there, when scoring a film? There is a lot of talking. And as I get more experienced, I start realising that talking is great to make an impression Mm. with the director or producer. You need to have that connection and that understanding of what you're about to score. But all the ideas that come from talking seem to get thrown out the window when you actually start playing something to picture yeah I think actually that was a whole load of bollocks that conversation yeah, yeah. it's not working <laughs> is or, that because um, it's all quite cerebral um, yeah it's a bit more intuitive I think yeah at that moment and you don't really know what's going to work to picture you might have this amazing idea and you might all be on the same page and then you actually try it against picture and it doesn't work so I do find I mean you've got to have those preliminary conversations and sometimes they do work those ideas or at least little nuggets of them work but I think until you start actually writing something and watching it against the scene you don't really know. The process of scoring a film could you just walk us through as if someone knows nothing about that whole process what happens first? Right uh the first step is to meet the team the director producer editor sometimes you have these conversations about their vision for the film and for the music. Um, Sometimes I'll have a very clear, strong vision for everything. Other times they're very open to discussions and I don't mind either way. And then I usually come back and tinker on my keyboard or I've got something in my head, which usually happens when I'm walking around or on the Mm -hmm. bus or in the shower, which sounds cliched, but it's totally it. Yeah. um, I'd say top yeah. tip is have a little microphone ready on your have an app that is a top tip you sing into I've got a lot yeah. of me going holding a phone yeah walking around <laughs> pretending I'm talking on the phone but singing into it um, yeah and um, I guess that's because your brain's allowed to just relax really. that's totally yeah. it you've hit the nail on the head I think yeah. that's it because um, when I'm stressed come. it's really awful yeah. you're sitting there and you get writer's block mm. big time if you don't have ideas and you're sitting there nothing's working yeah I think, um, walking around yeah. and just trying to forget it's, about it. It's so easy to just try and like plough on, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and also time of day, I'm finding I am a night owl, I um, mm. always have been, but your brain is tired then, and I find the mornings are the best for just resetting. Yeah, if you're at night just struggling, I think, yeah. well, write some ideas and go to bed Yeah, and wake up early, and then it's completely different. Yeah, do you get that um, adrenaline rush late at night, though, sometimes when yeah. you've like whoa I've got a thing and yeah. then you chase it and yeah. you really flesh out as much as possible flesh it out yeah. exactly totally and then but then the next morning you come in with fresh ears and it's yeah. either a work of genius or it's the worst thing you've ever heard yeah. you think what was I thinking <laughs> but yeah no I do get these things at night and then I think a, a little sketch seems to be the way I wouldn't really flesh out a whole thing mm. at night anymore yeah um so the conversations happen you come back you tinker with some ideas and then in those early stages, you're just trying to get... Is it the vibe of the yeah. score? It depends also when they bring you on board. So mm. sometimes they'll bring you on board during script process and they'll ask for ideas then. Essentially, a sort of a library kind of feel. So I might send over six or seven tracks based on what I've read of the script. And again, it could all they could get thrown out yeah. when they start editing. But sometimes there's a little nugget or a theme that might stick. And then other times they'll bring you on board when they've locked the cut, which I don't really... It's great if you're in a rush and you need to get this job done quickly because you've got other things brewing. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm going to be brutally honest. Yeah. You know, less time is great and then you can just get on with it and then they don't have time to make 
millions of changes either. But I find having more time is really nice Mm. because you can play around with themes. And I really like the relationship with the editor as well in particular because I like throwing things at them and then they might go, oh, this little vibe thing worked can you just develop it here? And then mm. you think, oh, yeah, okay, so then that becomes the main theme and you've worked together in that process. Yeah. It's very much a collaborative process. The small steps. Yeah, yeah, which I think is fun because then you know that everybody's happy and everybody's yeah. getting what they want. They help you, you help them. Mm. And, yeah. The writing at the script stage thing's quite rare, isn't it? Yeah, I've done it a few times. For example, when I work with Bart Layton, he likes to bring me on board really, really early. Cool. So for American Animals, it was after reading the script, I went and wrote 10 demos. Awesome. I just wanted to get them in there. He wanted to hear some stuff. So when we started editing, I'd say half of them stuck and became Mm. the main themes. And then the other half just got chucked out. Sure. (laughs) But that was probably really great for him, having that sound in his head. Yeah. Early on and shooting. and Yeah, because he does say he likes to listen to music and um, when he's shooting... But also just to give them the confidence that it's going to be all right and that the composer's on board okay. and they're doing what you want to do. Because mm-hmm. um, also for Bart, American Animals, although we'd worked together before on his documentary, The Imposter, The American Animals was a different step for him and all of us. And it was his first drama. He's incredibly nervous, as okay. we all were. So I think he just wanted all those building blocks in place yeah. early on to give him the confidence that I could also write drama. (laughs) Let's go, let's go, let's go. It's from the American Animals soundtrack. American Animals is an amazing film, isn't it? I loved it. I loved the script when I read it. It blew me away. It's brilliant. Could you give a synopsis of what the film is? (laughs) Off you go. You worked on it. (laughs) It's such a hard one to talk about. Um, American Animals is a true story about four students in Kentucky, America, who decide to steal rare books from the university library. And by rare books, we're talking Darwin and Audubon and books that are worth millions of dollars. They're only guarded by the librarian. So they decide they're going to just steal these books, make lots of money and live happily ever after, not thinking of the consequences. Yeah, just through sheer boredom of their lives and, and sort of wanting to live through a movie. They've been watching a lot of heist films and yeah. they think it'll be a cool thing to do. Yeah. There's one that was a good artist and he was looking at all the kind of great artists of of, of history of art and thinking they've all had traumas and, you know, turbulent times. That's right. How can you be a good artist when you just have a quite nice middle-class life? Exactly. And isn't that the tagline? Nobody wants to be ordinary. ordinary. Yeah, that's right. Oh, well done for remembering. It's all my my facts gone now. (laughs) I'm winging it from here on in. (laughs) Um... Yeah, like, it's so well made. They have the talking heads mm. of the original people yeah. in the film. And sometimes there's, like, these overlaps between the real people and the cinematic yeah. version. Yeah, so Bart really pushed the boundaries between documentary and drama. And he's always done that. His background is documentary. But he started to make these incredible drama docs in his early days. And that's he has a company called Raw who make... TV programs and uh, most of them are drama docs and they make beautiful they're like little mini feature films shot beautifully great acting and so I think he's taken that and then he made The Imposter which had quite a lot of drama in it a bit more than you would have been used to seeing in a documentary at the time and now this weird hybrid between drama and documentary This cue from the film is called Chaz Thank you. 
Bart on Soundtracking Podcast, Edith Bowman's oh, yeah, podcast. Yeah. He said that he'd given the actors playlists created by the original guys and those playlists were filled with the music that they were listening to at the time of the heist. Did you get a playlist? Uh, Bart gave me a playlist of the tracks he was thinking about okay. and um, the kind of vibe he wanted. Mm -hmm. So we were listening to a lot of music together yeah. and then all the commercial tracks that he chose that are in the film because there are quite a lot of commercial tracks. Yeah. He was always sending to me and the editors and so I felt very much part of that team. You'd say, what do you think, guys? Can you think of other ones that might be cheaper? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, uh, or better, or, you know. Yeah. So, for example, the Elvis one during the fantasy heist, a little less conversation. What's that called again? Yeah, um, um, I think people will know what yeah, it is from that. It's, it was used in um, Ocean's Eleven. Mm -hmm. And so Bart laid it on early on, thinking we'll change it because it was right. used in Ocean's Eleven and it's expensive too. And yeah. But as we went, I mean, we must have listened to 100 tracks wow. each of us and, you know, on throwing that, over ideas. The, over the scene. Yeah. yeah. And nothing just was working. Uh -huh. We even tried writing something else or, you know, a Kinks track. Nothing was working. So anyway, yeah. we had to just go with that. Go with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. It was really Which good. Works. Really but it, good. I like that it was using Ocean's Eleven because it is a fantasy heist and they yeah. do watch o Ocean's Eleven mm -hmm. as yeah. well in the movie to get yeah. ideas for the heist. So I think it works. The insanity of the whole thing, the mm -hmm. whole story, it's, um, I mean, it's just such a larger than life idea that they had. They're just bonkers. Yeah. That they thought they could pull it off. I know. And they kind of almost <laughs> do. The, the score is just so tense and twisted and like there's so much distortion and the, the tension is almost unbearable at certain oh, times great. yeah okay <laughs> and the um sort of the 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 books the main books this huge book i so can't the, remember who it was it's audubon but... some incredible paintings of yeah. birds of america and yeah that's that's what they try to steal but the book is huge and heavy yeah they can't can't <laughs> they haven't well. thought of this <laughs> yeah <laughs> i met the real guys so they um, the film was showed at Sundance, premiered there, and the actors came and the real guys came, and we all had dinner and together, and they were just so lovely. They seemed so, so lovely. lovely. And I thought, how on yeah. earth have you guys yeah. done that and each spent seven years in prison? And they were very open and honest about it and completely remorseful of mm -hmm. what they'd done. Yeah, that does come across. Mm. Yeah, they, um, they don't seem like the types, but they did what exactly the film says... Uh, Nobody wants to be ordinary. Yeah. That was their goal, really, wasn't it? To create yeah. some excitement. Yeah. Um, I do wonder if, now that this film's been made, their lives are probably pretty exciting now. That's it. <laughs> they, they got what they wanted. <laughs> from crime. <laughs> Big yeah, time. Apart from a, seven years in prison. That's a really good point. So, at the end of the film, it tells you what each one of them's up to. Yeah. And the kind of, the jock guy, he's written a book on prison workouts. Yeah. Oh, Warren yeah, is Chardy. the filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Spencer. He's an artist, right? Yeah. And he specialises in birds as well, which is quite funny. His art's great. It's online. He lives in Columbia with his wife and child. Yeah. And yeah, he paints. It's really good. There's, they show <laughs> a picture of one in the film and it does look really, really great. Yeah. Kind of want one. Yeah, I know. Well, people yeah. have been buying them. I, I bet think he's... I should buy one before they go <laughs> skyrocket. <laughs> I mean, they're probably making a fortune now. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I suppose they've paid their dues. Yeah, done the time. But and in yeah. fact, um, Eric was telling me that he's found it really hard being an ex-convict to get in the workplace. He said they won't even hire him in America as a dishwasher. Really? And so now he's trying to work with with policy to change that so that ex-convicts can get jobs okay. in America yeah. and be treated with a bit more dignity. Otherwise, they start reoffending and they go back. But he yeah. said at the moment it's hopeless everybody especially black offenders they've got yeah. no hope of getting a job yeah. after they are released from prison and then they're left with no option yeah up, but too and that okay. opened his eyes to all of that so he's doing some that good is, work that is good work yeah no, that's really good so just to go back to the music, music. itself <laughs> there's all these kind of like animalistic sounds in there as well that seem to be quite unusual instruments that you've used like what are those kind of i'm not going to do an impression
didgeridoo. Is it? <laughs> yes. Is it? Okay. Yeah, which is not American. No. But I kind of warped it and I just really liked it. It's a know. powerful sound, isn't it? It's a powerful sound. I tried to not make it sound like a didgeridoo because mm-hmm. that completely would have thrown everything. But mm. Yeah, I didn't, yeah. didn't clock that really. And there's a so. cue and in the soundtrack it's called Warren and it's got some really lovely woodwind things like there's a brass yeah. and woodwind moment and I was listening to it and I was like it's a bit kind of Peter and the Wolf and yeah. because of the birds it's like double reed instruments doing the tweety sort of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> jaunty stuff humour in it there's a couple of those cues throughout the film there to try and break up the yeah. it's funny because we did try um a sort of more downbeat score at the beginning oh, okay. to make it kind of dark and it was just killing the film right and so we realized it needed to have these comic elements to mm-hmm. the humor as well because these guys are funny yeah and you don't want it to just be all doom and gloom yeah. it's meant to be a jaunty heist film yeah. and then, they're idiots as well they're idiots <laughs> <That's true. laughs> and then to remind the audience exactly that. exactly and you know it's not done out of menace or anything it's yeah. just kids being ridiculous yeah and then it you know and then it needs to get darker mm. as we go the turning point is when they attack the librarian yeah. essentially and i think that's when when it turns dark so yeah so we changed all the music at the front neutralize her and it's from one of the heavier moments in the film when you take it away from the picture and listen to the standalone score the score feels grander than a the crime and their abilities their naivety and, yeah. and these kinds of things it feels like this music will go with a heist film done by professionals it, the music yeah. really gives you that sense so when you watch it with the film i think that's why you get so um you get so invested in them because you believe that they can do it even though yeah. when it all goes wrong you're like Oh yeah, of course it went wrong. Because <laughs> yes. the score makes you believe, like this is a proper. This is legit. Yeah. They're gonna do this thing. Oh, cool. it's, it's really cool just separating it and being like, yeah, this feels like it's got more than they had to give. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And that was my pretentious thought of the week. I love that pretentious thought. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really like such a brilliant score. The world enjoyed it, and it was nominated for an Ivor Novello Award this year, it right? It Was yeah. I yeah. Almost fell off my chair when I found out. <laughs> <laughs> they only pick three films, don't they? They do, yeah. they do. And, um, yeah, the other was Daniel Pemberton, who's amazing, and Johnny Greenwood, who is amazing. Mm-hmm. So it was a real honour shock to be put in the same category as those two. Well, I mean, the score deserves it, definitely. It's great that you got the recognition for that. And um, Johnny Greenwood should leave something for... The rest of the music world, really. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll ask him next time if, when he wins another one, if I can just have it. Just have it. Yeah. <laughs> He'd probably it. like run out of space. Does he do rent an Iver? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you make a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, also, yeah. I was so nervous, I didn't want to make a speech. So when they called his name, I thought, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> and then afterwards, I was a bit annoyed. But yeah. no, he's so lovely and he's mega talented. So yeah. it's well deserved.
you're hearing a cue from Anne's score to Untouchable, the rise and fall of Harvey Weinstein. This one's called Accusations. And just before getting back to the chat, after this piece of music, we're going to have a quick Acast advert break, which, depending on what you're listening on, may or may not materialise. Pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I also watched recently uh, Untouchable. Oh, yes. Um, Do you want to do another synopsis? Oh, my goodness. Untouchable, the rise and fall of Harvey Weinstein, I believe it's called now, um, is about the rise and fall of Harvey Weinstein. And it's a documentary, feature doc. Again, it opened at Sundance this year. Director's Ursula McFarlane, who is an amazing director I've worked with before. She's a force to be reckoned with. She's great. And she's so lovely. And I worked with the London Contemporary Orchestra again. I love them. They're just amazing players. They just get what I'm hearing and they just they make it even better. And yeah, and it was just recently on BBC in September. It was a really fun score. <laughs> is, that the, <laughs> is that the right word? Edit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a real it's a fictional jolly. Film, right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I knew it would be tough to crack this one because you want to, you don't want to make it too dark in horror, but you kind of want to sit back, but you also want to make an impact with the score but you want to let the talking heads talk because they were just incredible, these women who've come out to tell their story. So that's you get that a lot with feature docs. You have to kind of support rather than get in the way. Mm. And yet you also want the music to kind of have its character and yeah. tell the story as well, be supportive. So we went for a string quintet. I worked with Jessica Jones and Tim Morris, who are amazing. They helped me out because it was a quick turnaround. It was a month over Christmas. And <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, or six weeks or so. Yeah. Um, and even Ursula hardly had any time. It was really quick for her as well, yeah. quick film to turn around. And I wanted to do a good job, so we did get the LCO involved, Jake Jackson Engineering. A legend of the yeah. film music studio yes. world. Fantastic. And then Gertz Boatsenhart, who mixes most of my stuff. Yeah. He's incredible. You got the A team around to help turn A-team. this thing around. Yeah. 
I suppose with a film like that, the quicker you get it out, the more effective it is, because the case is still ongoing, isn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. We had to, like, that was it. Um, I sort of wanted to get it out before any significant court things happened or yeah. injunctions or something. And um, has the film had an impact at all on... Maybe it's brought more women out of, probably not the right word, but, you know, hiding. Yeah. Brought out uh, the the truth. Yeah, Mm. giving them a voice. And added more to the case against him. I mean, I I don't know for sure, but it Mm. had a glowing review in The Guardian, Mm. five stars, which is fantastic. For for that reason, I think it was, they were just saying it's a seminal film and it's been really, um, in trying to get these voices heard. And I feel it will give women courage and men who've been abused in the workforce because they didn't just touch on these women they talked about you know he basically abused the men as well with bully tactics and even physically throwing things at them yeah. getting them in a headlock yeah. which is with the journalist oh my god that story yeah. yeah and just basically um being a dictator of this yeah. little country <laughs> he referred to himself as the sheriff in town yeah. didn't he and exactly. that the thing with the headlock he was punching a reporter in, in the top of the head yeah because this reporter had done something he didn't like, um, and there was paparazzi in a big ring around him, yeah. snapping the whole thing, hundreds of pictures, not yeah. one of them made it to the papers. Yeah. And that's how powerful he was, it's yeah. like the height of his... Not one yeah. photo has been yeah. seen. Yeah. So. yeah, 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 even seen, yeah. not even made it onto the papers, yeah. Yeah. It's insane. Because he was able to threaten, he was basically the mafia of, of yeah. this film world. Yeah, so I think it's been a really important film, and I'm glad it's out there, and I'm glad it's been well-received. And, yeah, these women are really brave. And I think it's helping to change what's happening in the world with all sorts of bosses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it's men a, in powerful places. It seems to be a good... I mean, it's in the, he's an extreme example, but, yeah, yeah, it does demonstrate how that power imbalance can lead to abuse. Yeah. In, you know, when someone's a bit evil. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was kind of thinking whilst watching it... Who were you writing for? Like, what did you have in your mind when you were putting together cues for the film? We kind of came up with this idea of the Godfather, not to allude to the score at all, mm. but just that he that there's a distinctive theme in the Godfather that keeps coming back, and mm. we wanted that for Harvey Weinstein as well. And so I spent quite a long time trying to nail the opening scene because that's where we want to hear the theme. And it took quite a lot of goes for that. Yeah. Um, and then once I was able to get that theme through the door, then I could continue with the rest of the film yeah. and have variations of that theme. And, and then I was trying to have a theme that kind of reflects what's happening in the film, so it kind of moves upwards and ascending mm-hmm. motion, and then it keeps coming down, and then at the end it kind of drops down. And yeah. I wanted to reflect the dreams and aspirations of these actors who... They want to be in Hollywood, they want to be having these amazing roles and their careers keep getting bashed down because they're not sleeping with Harvey. (laughs) And so it was, yeah, I wanted the theme to reflect that and then also the rise and fall of Harvey Weinstein. So it's literally going up and down. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, why not? Yeah, why not? But then once I got the theme out of the way, and then um, a couple of the scenes. Actually, you know what? No. <laughs> I'm going to change my answer. I retract that. <laughs> Bloody easy. <laughs> um, 
I found it hard at the beginning to try and get that main theme. There was a lot of back and forth discussions with Ursula and the editor Andy Warboys. So the three of us kept talking about it and you know it was missing certain things. I just couldn't get it. It was really annoying me. Um, eventually when I did get that I felt the rest of the film started to come through naturally. Cool. And I quite like dark films. I, I like scoring <laughs> dark films, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I find it, and I think most composers will say the same, they find it easier than comedy or happy uh -huh. films. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I was kind of, this is really wrong to say, but I was kind of in my element with the score. Well, yeah, the tone. Yeah, the tonally. Yeah. Yeah, so I've, I really, really enjoyed scoring it, and I felt it was I was part of something quite important as well. This is Wonder Women. I should also add that this soundtrack isn't available yet, so outside of the film, this is the only place you can hear it for now. But do make sure you go and check out the film. It's really brilliant and obviously quite harrowing and shocking at the same time. You're talking about American Animals must feel like just a decade ago that you worked on it. It does. But like, they just, things take so long to come out. Yeah, so, they do. You know, the stuff that's fresh, no one's yeah. going to really see or hear. For I know, a while. that's true. I did like eight scores or something last year. Yeah. And I don't know if they've any have come out yet. No. <laughs> it's so <laughs> that's weird. Insane. You are prolific. I don't know how you get so much done. It's amazing. Workaholic. Yeah, and I guess you have to be yeah. to make it in film music world. Like That's an interesting thing for people to hear if they're mm. thinking about coming into film music, if that's their sort of career aspiration. Yeah. How did you get into it? What sort of things do people need to do and be prepared to do? Everyone's got a different story about how they got into film music. And I remember being a student at the Royal College of Music and we'd have a composer pretty much every week, a working composer, to come and talk to us about it and everyone had a different story. And I was naive and thought, as soon as I finish my degree, I'll land my first job. Yeah. <laughs> Six years later, yeah. um, I finally got a paid job. Uh, and I got that through winning a competition, which is totally random, but it was a BBC competition to find a film composer, TV composer. And the prize was a commission to score a BBC natural world film. So I won that, weirdly. That's how I got into it, and then it snowballed from there. Yeah, I was so lucky that that came along uh, on this competition. I met Ty Unwin, who was one of the judges, and we became really, really good friends. He's one of my best friends. And he started to get me on board for some of his things. He didn't have time. He's always working on about 10 projects yeah. at the same time. And so I got to score this thing called Journey to the Edge of the Universe, which was a feature doc and it was about space, which I love, I'm obsessed with space. Yeah. And he just said, can you just do this and play around with these ideas? So I wrote the score and then I sent it back to him and then he put bells and whistles onto it and it was really fun. But I sent him my first cues and he called me up and I'd, I was on like three hours sleep a night. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? Everything's panned to the left. It's <laughs> like... <laughs> he's like I can't believe you can't even pan and he was really tired too he never usually shouts at me yeah. and I was like crying on the other end oh and we always tell that story and laugh yeah <laughs> so I okay. pan really well now <laughs> well, just don't pan. pan at all mono just avoid any uh, risks um, a lot of composers get in by assisting established composers and what sort of skill sets might make you a good assistant that um, a composer will want to have around? As well as knowing your technology or software, like Sibelius, knowing how to orchestrate really helps. And as well as knowing all of that, <laughs> sort of the technical stuff, having somebody who's keen and, and will 
work around the clock mm. because that's what we all do and I don't think you can survive in this business, unfortunately, right or wrong, unless you're prepared to work around the clock and meet those heart palpitating deadlines yeah. and get no sleep yeah. and think, what the hell am I doing? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so if you've got somebody who's assisting you who's gets that and is keen to do that, then that's half the battle because I think sometimes you might have an amazing assistant they're great composers they know their technology but if they're not showing that they're going to be you know pull the bells and whistles when the yeah. time when the shit hits the fan basically yeah, yeah. then I think um, that's something that will be noted <laughs> yeah and the brutal reality is mm. that it, it's a very often like super quick turnarounds isn't it yeah. and, and let's say you've got a session on Friday yeah still writing cues on Thursday yeah. and then you've got orchestrators yeah. um, off in another space somewhere yeah. waiting for things to come through, getting them prepared uh, and then the copyist or, you know, yeah. it's so totally. tight. It's really tight and on American Animals was one example where I'd been working on it for about a year with Bart but it doesn't matter, <laughs> it still was <laughs> crazy at the end. Nobody had heard the music until a week before the recording session, oh. aside from Bart. So when all the financiers decided to listen, it was there was only a week left to go before recording an orchestra at Abbey Road, and the notes came through, and I just thought, I'm going to have a heart attack. And I didn't have an assistant at the time, it was just me. <laughs> and luckily, Hugh Brunt from the LCO had come to the screening, and... Um, he was brilliant. He basically just said, it's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. I'm orchestrating it. Don't worry about yeah. it. I've got the team ready. And he really um, put me at ease there yeah. because I really thought I wasn't going to make it. Yeah. Uh, and, and in terms of having somebody that assists you, they need to reassure the composer as well. That's yeah. another thing. Because sometimes a composer might be freaking out and it would be amazing if an assistant can go, don't worry about it. We're gonna do it. it's great yeah. and smile yeah. that really helps when you've got a team who's keen happy and making you feel like it's all gonna be fine <laughs> yes even as you know the composer that's got a great gig all human and yeah. stress is stress isn't it and this is it and yeah. um stress is stress and you know the last thing you want is a team who are going oh god yeah, yeah, this is really hard. Oh, God, are we going to make it? It's yeah. awful. You don't want that. Yeah. But I work with um, Jessica Jones quite a lot, who's becoming an incredible composer in her own right. Mm. Um, but she really... She was my first assistant. And uh, she's she always did that. She was just so cool about everything. And she'd say, yeah, that's fine. Just call me. And she'd turn around something really quickly if I needed it. And yeah. she's... Yeah. I thought, wow, that's half the battle. This is quite an appropriate piece of music to play you. It features the vocals of Jessica Jones, who's just been mentioned, and this is on a different project, a Netflix series that Anne wrote the music for, I think assisted by Jessica, and that show's called Lost Girls, and it's out next year. interesting bit of chat it's about technology and the fact that film composers have to make demos to put to picture in order to sort of sell their composition which can be a flawed system here's Anne explaining why because sometimes technology can be a hindrance because you're in the box and I mean that's one of the biggest things I think using technology is that you're constantly trying to make your demos sound really good and you can only, so you write for the demos <laughs> to make them sound good. So anything where the demo's going to sound shit, yeah. you kind of avoid, avoid it. Yeah. writing that. And I'm trying not to do that anymore. And I think lots of composers are finding that yeah. as well. That you're, you become a bit of a slave to your samples. Luckily samples are evolving and they're getting much better now. Yeah. But 
Um, Spitfire probably leading the way on that. Yeah, they definitely are. Um, I've been listening to, for example, Calibre. There's so many minute details in the string writing that I was listening to. I was thinking, like, this would have been very hard to create in a demo. It was. And so when I worked with the LCO, I asked them to improvise a little bit. Mm. And we sat in the studio together and we talked about what it would be like. And I was playing the film as well. Yeah. And so that really helped to actually yeah. work with live musicians. Workshopping and yeah. adjusting in the room. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. And then even after that, doing a little bit of manipulation with Joe Rubel, who produced it and, um, what's the word? <laughs> Mixed. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Joe was mixing it because, weirdly, the director had fallen in love with the MIDI demos. And then when he heard the live, amazing live, the actual finished product, he kind of freaked out a little bit. He was in the dub going, oh, no, this isn't what I've got in my head. No. You know, the MIDI demos. Or... Yeah. And luckily, Joe um, just sort of manipulated the reverb a little bit and he did something to make it a little bit more like the MIDI demo. I see. But okay. still keeping the live yeah. elements. So he sort of had to reach halfway. Because for me, I wanted to push the strings a lot. Mm. So we did a couple of takes. We did a crazy, more avant-garde take of them. And then we did something a bit more similar to the demo, which is a bit more straight. Yeah. In the end, we kind of went in the middle. So you're preempting the, the director might struggle with yeah i tend to do that because i do i'm finding more and more now they do fall in love with the um midi demo so first they fall in love with the guide music so you have to break that down yeah and then they fall in love with the midi demo (laughs) so you gotta break that but it's all about your ears getting used to things so i ask directors to listen to things many times before they judge your music so that's quite common then for any composer i imagine yeah to have to fight against yourself yeah. At phase three. Yeah, exactly. Because um, even you, the composer, I think, gets used to the MIDI demos. And I'll sit with mixers and go, oh, can you make this sound a bit more like the MIDI demo? And I think, oh, God, I'm sounding like a director now <laughs> um, who's fallen in love with temp. Now. Yeah. Well, repetition, that's one way of concreting something that you like, isn't it? When yeah. you hear something a hundred times. That's why pop music works on the exactly. radio. Exactly. Um, and if they play it a different way... Yeah. You think, oh no, something that's wrong. Not, yeah, I like on. it that way. Or yeah. you get used to a live yeah. version of a pop song and then you hear the real thing and you think, oh, I prefer the live one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, tough sort of diplomatic, sort of psychological yeah. battle. Definitely. I guess. There is a lot of um, that psychology in politics, yeah. you know, dealing with directors and everybody, producers. Yeah. A lot of chefs, aren't there? Yeah, a lot. This one's Head for the Hunt from the Calibre score. And did you play in a rock band? Oh, okay. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, since I was really little, I was singing into tape recorders, like maybe a lot of kids do, but I was obsessed with music from the beginning, ABBA. Of and uh, I was notating music when I was about eight, and it was just instructions on how to, for me and a friend, to play little rhythm things and I didn't I couldn't read music or anything back then yeah. but I had my little symbols and you made your own notation yeah <laughs> oh my god that's really cool and then as a teenager I really got into the indie music scene and MTV there was a program called 120 minutes every Sunday night hosted by Paul King and he <laughs> would play all the latest Indie rock, and yeah. it was. I just used to tape it on the VCR yeah. <laughs> so I could watch it back, all the videos, and that really got me into that. And then the Riot Girls were taking off, so that was all about women playing hardcore rock. So I grew up thinking that was all very normal, yeah. And so that 
my gender wasn't an issue ever because I had all these amazing role models like them yeah. and Vanessa Lan, my com- composition mm-hmm. teacher, so it never even struck me that that wasn't something women yeah. didn't really do. So, yeah, yeah, tried to play guitar and wanted to be in a band. Realised yeah. I was a really bad guitarist, <laughs> can't sing, and my songs were crap. <laughs> but I had the dream. <laughs> But then I did, um, about 10 years ago, a friend of mine had a band, and she's amazing, she's really talented, they needed somebody else, so I thought, I'm just going to join, live the dream, (laughs) and uh, so I did play guitar in that band, it was called The Six, and we had an album released, and we played gigs, Cargo, Headline, Saturday Night. Did you now? Yeah. Proper. Proper, it was really fun, and then her visa ran out, she's Australian, so she went back. Six went the Five. six were f- <laughs> there are only four of us anyway right <laughs> <laughs> the six think of were confusing <laughs> we spent I don't yeah. know I mean you've been in bands I'm sure yeah try and think of a band name it's the worst thing ever um all I can think of is the ones from Peep Show if you've seen that like Danny Dyer's Chocolate Homunculus <laughs> or Man Feelings <laughs> that's brilliant yeah yeah drama wanted to be called fallopian tubes <laughs> and we just shut that one down quite quickly <laughs> it's, a good it's a headline grabber it is. before this first part comes to a close uh let me just tell you about the music making part of each one of these episodes basically with each guest We co-write a track, we use only one instrument that the guest has provided, we only have that day to make the piece and we can't pre-plan anything. We can manipulate our recordings electronically though, within Ableton or Logic or whatever. So if you go onto your app and look for the music making part of this episode, you'll get to follow us on the whole journey of writing that piece, starting with absolutely nothing and then ending with a finished piece of music. So here's a little flavour of what's to come in Anne's music making part, which is available now. So you can head there after this. I, I don't know, I feel like maybe we should listen to some classic Casio demos and maybe that could be our starting point. Okay, this is the classic demo. <laughs> oh yeah. Very snazzy stuff indeed. Go and check out that part B or save it for later. I don't mind. It's a really fun music-making episode, so... uh yeah, I think you'll like it. Um, and I hope you liked hearing from Anne and hearing lots of her music. I'm extremely grateful for all of the brilliant, insightful things that she's contributed to this episode, as well as giving up some of her very precious time. If you want to keep track of what she's up to, I think the best thing to do is follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at Anne Nicotin, A-N-N-E-N-I-K-I-T-I-N. And her website is the same with a dot com. Thanks very much for checking out Excuse the Mess. This is sort of the halfway point of Series 2. They're going to be a bit more sporadic from now on, one a month. Please do subscribe to Excuse the Mess on your podcast apps if there's a way to rate it. Give it the number of stars you think it deserves. It shouldn't take you too long, and apparently it really helps with the podcast's visibility on all the various apps. Anyways, thank you for checking out Excuse the Mess. Looking forward to bringing you more episodes soon. Have a great month. Be back next month with someone new. Just to close off this episode, I'll bring up what's simmering away underneath, and that is Anne's old band, The Six, and a track called The Gaza Strip.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.